6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 1 and 2. We're going to plunge into one of the richest treasures in the Holy Scriptures, the book of Psalms. So if you want, you can turn your hymnals to Psalm 1, because <laughs> it is the hymnals. It's Israel's hymnal. We're going to discover its poetry that's been laced with very strong theology, very unusual mixture. In the Hebrew, the word that they use is, means praises. 55 of 150 of them are specifically addressed to the chief musician. These were originally intended to be sung. It's amazing to me that despite all the research that surrounds uh, the Jewish scriptures, how little we really know about their music. There's all kinds of speculations and conjectures by many scholars, but none that are really totally convinc uh, you know, convincing. The Greek translation, the Septuagint and the rest, speaks of some way, a, a poem to be sung or through a stringed instrument. A saltar is a harp or stringed instrument, so it's from that that we get the English label of the book, is from the Greek translation. But the nature of poetry we often misunderstand. We're used to poetry that's designed around its phonetic design, its phonemes. We're familiar with rhyme, which is the parallelism of sound, or rhythm, which in a sense is parallelism of time, or cadence, or meter, if you will. And that's the poetry that we would study in English, and in most languages, would be phonetically uh, and rhythmically uh, intensive. Not so with the Hebrew poetry. They're really structured around the conceptual design. They deal with the parallelism, not of rhyme or rhythm, but of ideas, concepts, precepts. Some of them are comparative to things that are com used comparatively to illuminate a central thought. Some of them are antithetic or contrastive, black and white, to opposites, that sort of thing. Some of them are synthetic or completive, is an easier way to think of it, where one thought completes a, a previous thought and so forth. We'll encounter a word frequently in the Psalms, selah. There are many that presume that what that is is some kind of musical annotation. And indeed, the Psalms, all, many of them have what apparently were musical annotations of some kind. But uh, E.W. Bullinger and others make quite a case for this fact that the Selah term within the psalm is not really a musical term as much as it is a pause to consider. It's a link, it's an instruction to pause and integrate what you've just read. It's a conceptual pause, not necessarily just a musical pause. In any case, this parallelism, there is a thing called synonymous parallelism. That's where the second line of two restates the first. 
Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? See, those two thoughts are essentially rephrasing of the same thing, aren't they? That would be called synonymous parallelism. Psalm 15.1 is the example there. Another form of parallelism is antithetic parallelism, which is just the opposite. The lines are in contrast to one another. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Two categories. Very much the opposite. And we're going to encounter some of that in the very first psalm. Then there's also synthetic parallelism, where each successive line expands or confirms the previous one. The statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So each phrase amplifies, refines the previous one. Now, there are 150 Psalms, 73 specifically ascribed to David, and a number of other writers, and there are about 48 of them that are anonymous. And there's all kinds of scholastic conjectures about those, but I'm not sure it's that important to us, except to recognize that all through these is the presumption that they are to be sung. They're to be sung. Many, many books that analyze the Psalms collectively indulge in what sometimes is called the Pentateuch of the Psalms. They take the first 41 of these and call it the Genesis section, because it all, it's all about man. That's the section we'll be in tonight, of course. Exodus is the second section, which focuses on mankind's deliverance from Psalm 42 to 72. Then there's those, there are those that focus on the sanctuary, 73 through 89. And then there are those that speak of the unrestful wandering in the wilderness. And we are too. Not only did Israel wander in the wilderness, you and I wander in our wilderness in many ways. Psalms 90 through 106. And the final group is the word of the Lord itself in broad terms, from 107 to 150. And it's a very comfortable segmentation uh, into five books. I'm always fascinated by this because if you took those as five books, we wouldn't have 66 books in the Bible, we'd have 70. And I kind of like that division, except you start talking about the 70 books of the Bible and you'll generate all kinds of peculiar questions from people who haven't followed you. So, uh, but, uh, so they, they, many of the books call this the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteron Numbers, Deuteronomy sections of the Psalms. I want you to be aware of that and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go, but I don't want to overemphasize it. Because I'll tell you frankly, as I go through the Psalms, I don't see them that clearly in those five sections. And furthermore, there are Psalms in the fifth section that really belong. In, in other words, it turns out if you really start getting critical about this, it starts to become a little bit of suspect. But I want you to be aware of it in any case. But we would be entering then what many commentators call the Genesis section, the first 41 Psalms. Man is in view. He's in a state of blessedness, then fall, and then recovery. It deals with the perfect, Psalm 1 will deal with the perfect man, the last Adam. Psalm 2 will deal with the rebellious man. Psalm 3 will be the perfect man rejected. Psalm 4 will deal with the conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And Psalm 5, the perfect man in the midst of his enemies. And, uh, and, and so on it goes. Perfect man in the midst of ch chance chastisement, bruising the heel, if you will, Psalm 6. Psalm 7, the perfect man in the midst of false witnesses. 
Psalm 8, the repair of man comes through man, bruising the head, if you will. And the enemy and the Antichrist conflict, the final deliverance, Psalms 9 through 15. And then we have Christ in the midst of his people, sanctifying them to God in the rest of them. And uh, these are categories that some scholars have identified. But um, um, I'm reminded, as I jump into the book of Psalms, I don't know how many of you saw the movie, The Dead Poet Society, where the instructor has his class take out their books on poetry and read the first chapter, which talks about poetry and how it's metered and how it's organized and so forth and so on. He says, okay, class, I want you to tear that chapter out and throw it away. Because poetry isn't about analysis. Poetry is to be experienced. And I, I, I think of that. That's exactly the, po- the, the, the emphasis we want to have as we approach the book of Psalms. I'll highlight some expositional issues as we go, but then I'm going to suggest you do your best to forget them and just plunge in and taste, savor, and chew what we're dealing with. There are inscriptions on the Psalms, 34 without them. Some of them are very simple, some are historical, and so forth. We'll touch, about, touch on those, but we'll also discover that many of them are incorrect. I'll come back to that. We'll encounter all kinds of special terms. Many of them are assumed to be musical terms, but those are scholastic conjectures. And we'll touch on those. We won't go through them now. We'll go through those as we encounter them. And uh, there are many of those, um, some of which are clearly wrong, by the way, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But in the book of Habakkuk, he has a psalm there that's worth studying for structure. Habakkuk 3, verse 1, is the superscription. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon the Shigenoth, which is a musical term, apparently, a musical device. Then there's, from verse 2 through verse 19, is Habakkuk's psalm itself. And then it concludes with a subscription at the end, to the chief musician upon the Niganoth, which is, I guess, a musical term. Um, the point being here is, apparently it was the style to have the superscription up front and the musical instruction at the end. You'll notice many psalms have this subscription at the beginning, and some scholars think they're in the wrong place. So we want to be alert at least to the possibility that the subscription, the superscription on one psalm is really a carryover from the previous psalm. The, the, The divisions are not free of academic controversies. Hezekiah has a psalm in Isaiah, in Isaiah 38, verse 9. There's a superscription which announces it, the writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. That was the occasion that gives rise to the psalm. Then there's the psalm itself from verse 10 through 20. And then there's the subscription. Therefore we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of Yodhevave. Well, again, we get the impression from those psalms that are embodied in the text that the subscription follows rather than precedes. And because of that, that alerts us to the possibility, at least, that in our psalms as they've been translated and presented to us in the English, there may be some oversights here and there. We'll touch on some of those as we go. Now, there's all kinds of ways to group the psalms. And uh, there are penitential psalms. There are hallelujah psalms. There's imprecatory psalms, calling evil down on your enemies and such. There are the acrostic psalms, where there's a play on the actual letter patterning. And we'll touch on that as we go. 
Psalm 119 is perhaps the most famous because it has 22 sections, one section with, for each letter of the alphabet, and every line in each section begins with that letter. The first eight lines are, it's actually, uh, it's in eight couplets, there's 16 lines in eight verses, and each verse starts with an aleph, the next one with a beth, and so right, right through the, uh, the, the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, 22 sections. Each section has 16 lines with eight couplets, all starting with that same letter. So that's an example. That may have been, among other things, a mechanism to make it easier to memorize. But in any case, we find there are acrostic psalms. There's quite a handful of them, and we'll deal with those as we get to them. But let's underscore a caveat as we jump in. I, being a technical guy and having a specialization in the information sciences, I will probably, I, I obviously have a tendency uh, to um, emphasize the information sciences aspect of the, new, of the Holy Scriptures. And, uh, and I'll still try to highlight relevant things as we go. But we really need to, in this study, shift gears and not make this a head trip, but to make this a heart trip. That's really the intention. It's interesting that the, the, the God divided the animals in the Scriptures in two groups, the clean and the unclean. The clean animals were the ones for sacrifice. The clean ones were the ones that were acceptable to him. They were the ones that chewed the cud, chewing the cud. And I don't think that's accidental. That's exactly what you and I are in, uh, instructed to do because they, that was the, the key to having a clean sacrifice, being clean for the sacrifice. We want to avoid analysis paralysis. I have all kinds, I've been collecting books on Psalms in preparation for these studies and it's amazing to me to see the tomes that are written analyzing and classifying and, and it, it, there is more irrelevant observations. Uh, relevance is something we want to try saying. We want to make sure that our analysis of the text doesn't blindfold us to the message that hinders that to our souls. And so we want to focus ourselves on prayerful absorption not intellectual dissection. There are many places in the Scripture where it's very, very fruitful to be very precise with what the words mean and be very careful how it is structured and understand. There are other places, and this is one of them, where we want to be attentive to all of that on one hand, but we want to just ingest it. Ingest it. Pick a psalm and reread it and reread it and reread it and watch what happens. It's a gateway to the presence of God. It's a gateway to the presence of God. So let's jump in. We're going to take the first psalm, Psalm 1. We're going to contrast two different men who are walking two different ways and obviously have two different destinies. Let's just read it first. Let's read it through. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Wow. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Let's look at it a little more closely. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Boy, it's a shock to realize how often all of us fall into doing that very thing. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Notice the progress. First, you're walking in the wrong place. Then you're standing among them in the wrong place. And then you're sitting in their seats, in effect. See, see the progression there. And... Uh, the counsel of the ungodly, you know, as I started to prepare for this, that really started to bother me. See, our spiritual life is a walk, obviously. Ephesians 4, 5, lots of places mention that. Just who are the ungodly? Well, you can think of a lot of extreme negative people, but that's what I was saying. The people that are ungodly. Who is ungodly? Those that are not godly. It's hard to find someone who is godly. People who live as if God doesn't exist. Boy, that accounts for most of the people you encounter on television. Commentators, actors and actresses in general. It's astonishing to realize how you are surrounded in your information sources by people who have no grasp, no concept of God. I'm not speaking to the ones that are openly hostile to God. That takes care of itself in my mind. No, it's the ones that just presumptuously presume that people who follow God are a lunatic fringe of some kind. See, it's possible, apparently from this psalm, for a believer to be walking in darkness that is outside the will of God. We may love Christ, may read our Bible, and we still might be walking outside His will. Caution, big caution. 1 John 1 is your resource. Now, this can have both personal and family implications. Walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Let me give you another one. Should a Christian school be accredited? Now that's an interesting question. A Christian school is presumably committed to the discovery of truth. And the secular world is committed to the denial of the existence of truth. It shocks many people to realize that Harvard and Yale, Princeton were originally seminaries in their founding, early years. As time goes on, they've obviously come a long way from that mission statement. And that's the point. There are many universities and schools that believe if they become accredited, it will cause mission shift. Their stated mission, which is to prepare people for the ministry, say, begins to shift to the world. So it's a big debate. It's a big debate. And I'm not here to deal with that whole debate except just to raise the issue. There are issues. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly. 
And in the way of the sinners, what does sin mean? Well, sin means to miss the mark, right? See, they don't live quite as they should. <laughs> Proverbs says twice at least in it, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There is a way that seemeth right. This is value relativism. This is the very basic ethic inculcated in our society. Scripture says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and so forth. And then the seed of the scornful. What are scorners? Well, they're atheists, and they're in denial. They are willingly ignorant. They're even blind towards intelligent design, which they ascribe to randomness. I recently was reminded of a publication I encountered when I was in the think tank known as the Rand Corporation back in the 60s, early 60s. They had just published a few years before a book that if you saw sitting on my desk, you might laugh. The book is called One Million Random Digits with 100,000 Normal Deviates. And you open this book, and it's full of just numbers, random numbers. Now, to the naive person, you say, that's pretty stupid, just random numbers. They, published a, they became famous for that book because if you are a practitioner in laboratories, in science, you often have a need for what's called Monte Carlo methods and other things where you need a source of random numbers. It turns out, ran, truly random numbers are very difficult to come by. You can get pseudo-random numbers, numbers that are almost random, but Rand did a service because of their expertise in the computer industry in those days. They published one million random numbers in a book, and what made them distinctive is that they were tested and tested and tested on computers to be sure there was no patterns, no repeatings, no symmetry, no patterns. And the reason I bring this up, it came to mind the other day, and that's why I got myself a copy of it. I forgot to left it on my desk, but that's okay. Um, what it dramatizes, something that was understood in those days, is that randomness is defined as the absence of design. What made those numbers valuable is they had no pattern, they had no design, no symmetry, no repetition. That's why it was useful for the scientific purposes they were intended. I think they would, have been, they would be shocked in unbelief if I told them that within 40 years, our society is going to insist that any design in nature came from randomness. When they see a leaf or a flower or an animal or any kind of complex system, to deny that it's designed, that it came from randomness, would be to any thinking scientists back then the epitome of idiocy, foolishness, absurdity. And yet we live in just such a situation. To argue about evolution and creation, that's old stuff, we've all been there. But for the schools to make it unlawful to teach intelligent design in nature, as we might say it, is astonishing. We have a culture that is committed to the denial of the existence of truth. And of course, Proverbs says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace to the lowly, and so forth. Okay, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the sea of the scornful. Where is his then? Where is he, th that man? His delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate once a week, right? 
Twice a week? Day and night. Day and night. Chewing the cud. Medi the term meditate actually pictures a cow chewing her cud. Meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. I'm one of these type A kind of guys. One of the many places in my life I need to raise the bar, and there are many. I need to spend more time pausing, not racing from one appointment to the other or squeezing, oh, I got 15 minutes, I can knock off that particular paragraph I need for draft X. No, 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 no. Time out, time out. Find some time to do what? Stop, meditate, be silent before the Lord. Absolutely. There is joy in the Word of God, and that is so declared all through the Word of God. Jeremiah 15, verse 16, precious, precious passage from Jeremiah. He says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. I love that. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. The more you get into the Word of God, the more fun it becomes, the more joy it is. If, there seems to, if it seems to be oppressive, it seems to be boring, it seems, then there's something wrong. Because it's the, it is really the Word of God. Ezekiel 3.3, 3, He said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Ezekiel's terms. Very similar to the ones that John said in Revelation. Revelation chapter 10, verse 9. John writing, he says, I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, eat, take it, eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Revelation 10, 9. Well, Psalmist continues, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Man, what a promise that is. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music